The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Well, it's wonderful to be with you here tonight. I'm really honored. I want to uh, thank Enkyo Roshi from the bottom of my heart. I only got in touch a few weeks ago. I said, I'm going to be in New York. Could I, could I come to Village Zendo? And she said, well, I'm speaking that night, but sure. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for seating your place on the teaching seat. I'm here in New York uh, because I was invited by uh, All Souls NYC. Some of you may know that Unitarian Universalist Church up on Lexington to speak two Sundays in a row. Uh, I am a Unitarian minister and of course also a Zen, Soto Zen uh, teacher and priest. And uh, last week I was speaking uh, really uh, from my book the Hidden Lamp on freedom in a female form. And this next Sunday, you're all invited. Uh, there's really great music, I'll tell you that. Uh, I'm speaking on uh, spiritual practices for the Anthropocene. So really looking, and that's part of what I'm going to be talking about tonight. The, the title of my talk tonight is The Path of Courage in a Time of Change and Why Our Practices Really Matter more than ever. I'll also be leading a retreat this Saturday, also with koans from The Hidden Lamp, and I'll, I'll say a little bit about what the book is and why I keep mentioning it here in a moment. Uh, but on this same theme of uh, the environment and, and what it takes to have the courage to meet these difficult times. Uh, so if you're interested in any of that, you can look at All Souls, you'll, you'll see more about all that. So the book that I keep referring to is this. It, it's up on your, uh, in your little store. And I also brought a few copies and I'm happy to sign. I just uh, do it really just by donation. And, um, and I'm sure you, Enkyo Roshi could sign her commentary, which is also in the book. She, uh, she wrote on one of the really famous koans uh, from the Blue Cliff Record, Iron Grindstone Lou, tough as nails, pretty much. So as I mentioned, what I wanted to talk about tonight is uh, courage in a time of change. Just the other day, I went, I got to New York on Friday, and on Monday, I think, I went to the Asia Society and saw the exhibit there. Has anyone else seen that coal and ice? very powerful traveling exhibit that's been traveling for a number of years. Each time it comes to a new place, uh, there are more installations added. It's a series of installations about the effects of climate change. And uh, it's, it's very, very powerful. I went because I am a human being living through a time of climate change. Uh, and I also, uh, wanted to go because uh, one of the installations there at the Asia Society is based on a poem by Jane Hirschfield. Do some of you know? She's a great Zen poet. She's also one of the contributors to the Hidden Lamp, trains at San Francisco Zen Center. 
And this Sunday, uh, there's going to be a world premiere of a new choral piece based on the poem of hers that is in that, ex that exhibit at the Asia Society, which is called um, Let Them Not Say. So I'm, uh, I'm going to read the poem for you. Uh, and I'll just say, I feel like I, I don't know how it is for you in this Zendo. I know that you, you have a tough as nails teacher who is not afraid to really uh, bring up these things that we must bear witness to in this time. So, um, but do take care of yourself in whatever way, because um, it's not easy to face these things. So this is the poem by Jane Hirschfield. Let them not say, we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say, we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say, they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say, it was not spoken, not written. We spoke, we witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say as, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. One of the other installations in this exhibit is a room with video screens on four sides, dark room. And it was created by the South African artist Gideon Mendel. And he went all over the world uh, photographing footage of floods in different parts of the world, different cultures. And so in this room, you're surrounded by these images that are shifting all the time of people wading through the water, of people entering their flooded homes, picking up ruined photographs. And I discovered as I was in this room, I think the whole process is about 15 minutes, that I began to tremble. It was so visceral. And in another room, and I think this is new to having it in New York right now, uh, what for me was the hardest, it's a, it's a piece that was created by a design team called Superflux, and it's just called New York 2050. So you walk into this room, uh, maybe, maybe half of the room is about as big as this room, and there's a huge image of New York that I think was taken during the time of the smoke uh, earlier uh, this year, so um, that you can barely see the buildings. And somehow, I don't know how they've done this, but they've created an environment where you're actually, it's very hot in the room and you're breathing this smoky, uh, difficult, heavy air. Uh, and you walk through this and there's a kind of sound that's happening as well. And in the next room, you walk kind of in between these scenes of New York in 2050, in the next room, is also New York in 2050, partially flooded. I think some of it is uh, maybe, somebody said it might be the 
Flatiron District, would that be an area? Um, but it's all these uh, new ways of living in New York. So there are gardens and there are uh, uh, windmills out in the water and all these ways that the city is adapting as the city has always adapted. Uh, but it was, it was not easy to be in that room with that air. And in fact, I woke up later that night choking. I don't know, be careful when you go in there. A couple of days before I went to the Metropolitan and of course, where did I go in the Metropolitan? I went to the Asian galleries of the Metropolitan. And there are all these serene Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, Avalokiteshvara, Samantabhadra, um, you know, the Buddha of the future, Maitreya Buddha. And they've been preserved through every calamity. Think about all the things that have happened over the some 1800 years, 1600 years since these Buddhas were created. There they are, still smiling. And I keep thinking about these two experiences. There's a, a famous uh, Buddhist video uh, artist whose name is Bill Viola. And I saw an exhibit of his many years ago, and it had uh, two video uh, kind of scenes on spheres that faced each other. And uh, one sphere was a video of his mother on her deathbed. And the other video was of his newborn child uh, and reflecting each other. And I felt like this experience of coal and ice and the experience of the metropolitan with the Buddhas was like that for me. Uh, so I do feel like the Dharma is here to help us through a time that calls us, calls us for response, for compassion, for courage. And you would not be sitting here and the people online, I know, if the Dharma didn't help you through this time. As a young adult uh, growing up in the, in the 70s, the reality of the possibility of nuclear war was very strong. Uh, also, lots happening with the environment even then. And I had enormous despair. I was not sure I was willing to face what it meant to grow up in this world. And then I found the Dharma and it gave me the strength. It gave me the stability and the courage to step into adulthood and move through adulthood. But all my life, I was also at that time in my early 20s, I was reading a lot of the literature of South Africa during the apartheid era, the literature of South America during some of the dictatorships. And I just thought, I want to be a person with that kind of courage. Uh, and so all my life, this has been a question for me, my own koan, you know, what is courage? Where does it come from? How do we practice it? Because the world really needs us to be courageous. This is not just a personal question. This is us and the world. I went to Standing Rock and I saw a lot of courage there. Maybe some of you were following uh, last year the, the Venezuelan protester at Cop City in Atlanta who was killed by the police. 
And he said this incredible thing just to a reporter just a week or so before he died. He said, he was 26 years old. He said, I am scared, but you can't let the fear stop you from doing things, from living, from existing, from resisting. So related to courage, of course, is fear. Without fear, there's nothing to be courageous about. Without courage, fear stops us. In the original teachings of the Buddha, one of the three major types of giving is giving someone freedom from fear. Abhaya in Sanskrit means fearlessness. And perhaps you have seen uh, on one of those wonderful Buddhist statues at the Metropolitan, the mudra of fearlessness, Abhaya mudra. And this symbolizes the dispelling of fear. It, it sort of looks like the gesture for stop, right? I want you to try it. Try holding up your hand. Make that gesture of the dispelling of fear. Feel what that is like in your body to offer that. It's also a very ancient uh, symbol of peace and friendship. If you hold up your right hand, there's no, and it's empty, there's no way there can be a weapon in it. You can't attack. It is said that the historical Buddha made this hand gesture immediately after attaining enlightenment. And at a later time in his story, he was about to be attacked by a mad elephant who had been um, sent against him as a weapon. The elephant, enraged and in pain, charged at the Buddha and his followers. While others ran away, the Buddha stood calmly, raising his hand in this gesture. He felt great love and compassion for the stricken elephant. In response, the elephant stopped its charge, became calm, and then approached the Buddha and bowed its head. And perhaps some of you have done metta practice in your life, and you may know that um, this practice was actually given to monks and nuns who followed the Buddha um, to uh, help them and to protect them as they were practicing in the jungle with wild animals, with tigers, with venomous snakes, and all the fear that arose. And if you've ever done that practice, you know that actually it's very difficult to practice metta, to practice loving kindness, and to feel fear at the same time. It's a, it's a different energy. And so I love that the Buddha offered this to his frightened monks and nuns. And maybe uh, since you all have chanted the Heart Sutra in English, I'm sure there are different translations, but you all know that part, which really caught my eye as a young person when I first heard it, without hindrance, the mind has no fear, or without hindrance, there is no fear. And here's some other translations. Uh, without walls of the mind, and thus without fear. That's a translation from Red Pine. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, having no obstacles, they overcome fear. So as I mentioned, um, I'm going to be speaking on spiritual practices for the Anthropocene. and. I almost always, I don't know yet if I'll tell this story on Sunday, but I almost always tell the story from Thich Nhat Hanh that he told about the boat people 
I think it's a really important story for us. When the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. And then he goes on to say, I am inviting you to go deeper, to learn and to practice so that you can become someone who has a great capacity for being solid, calm, and without fear, because our society needs people like you who have these qualities, and your children, our children, need people like you in order to go on, in order to become solid and calm and without fear. So over the years when I was collecting stories along with my co-editor, Sue Moon, uh, for The Hidden Lamp, oh, and I'll say I was last here, at, but it wasn't here. <laughs> I was with Village Zendo, almost with Sue, almost exactly 10 years ago in 2014 with all, many of the uh, great women teachers of this area who, um, who contributed to the book at, in your old space. So it's great to be back 10 years later. And as we were collecting these stories and thinking about them and studying them, I started to realize how many of them were about courage, directly or indirectly. And maybe you could even say that they are all about courage because it takes great courage to practice whatever our gender, but particularly to practice as a woman in cultures that often saw women as beings of less capacity, less worthiness. And so uh, their very uh, presence as um, awakened women, as teachers in these cultures uh, took great courage for them to find themselves in that spot. And sometimes the courage is very obvious, like the story of the nun Rionan, who when told that she could not practice in a training temple with monks because her beauty would distract them. She was a former attendant to the empress. She took up a hot iron and scarred her face and then returned to that teacher and said, what about now? And was immediately admitted. I don't think, or at least I'd like to think, that it wasn't because she was less beautiful that he admitted her, but because the teacher saw her courageous heart of practice, her absolute clarity of determination. I'm a big fan of uh, A. Dogen as a Soto priest, and there's a really wonderful line that somebody introduced me to that is from the Ehe Koroku, the uh, Dharma Hall Discourses short, and it's called The Courage of Patch-Robed Monks. So I'll share it with you. Entering the water without, without avoiding deep sea dragons is the courage of a fisherman. Traveling the earth without avoiding tigers is the courage of a hunter. Facing the drawn sword before you and seeing death as just like life is the courage of a general. What is the courage of patch-robed monks? That's you, by the way. What do you think? Would you say if Dogen asked you that? What is the courage of patch-robed monks? And of course, there's a little pause and then 
he answers himself. He says, spread out your bedding and sleep, set out your bowls and eat rice, Ex exhale through your nostrils, radiate light from your eyes. That's the courage of the patch-robed monks. And if you have ever sat a retreat or even everybody here, right, just sat a single period of zazen, you know this is always true. It takes courage to meet our suffering, to meet our life raw and unadorned, sometimes even more courage than meeting a lion or a crazed elephant. Maybe all these animals are just metaphors for what we meet in our own minds and hearts in this practice. It takes a lot of courage to be a human being, have you noticed? To bear witness to life with its 10,000 joys and sorrows. And it takes a lot of courage to be a human being in these times with the world changing before our eyes in ways quite literally no modern humans, this human sapiens has seen before. One of the women in the hidden lamp is a 20th century uh, Indian Buddhist teacher, Deepa Ma, incredible story of her life. It was a life of great suffering, great hardship. And she, uh, as a very old woman, she came to the United States uh, to teach and met and practiced with uh, people in the US. And this is a little story from this time. She had practiced in, and taught in a, in a little apartment in the slums of Calcutta for a long time, but now she was traveling the world. So this is a story from her travels. Deepa Ma was on an airplane with a woman student. It was very turbulent and the woman screamed. Deepa Ma was sitting across the aisle and took her hand and held it. Then she whispered, the daughters of Buddha are fearless. So what does that mean? Was she, was she in some way scolding her student for being afraid? I don't think so. I think she was talking about the kind of fearlessness that includes fear, that is not separate, that arises right in the middle of your fear. Our willingness to move into our fear and uncertainty instead of away from it, like, like Dogen said, not avoiding it. That's what makes us fearless. And we need each other for this work. This is why Sangha matters, really matters. We can do this together in a way that's very difficult to do alone. So I wanna end with one last story about fear and courage. This one from 18th century Japan. This is a story that was recorded by the great uh, Zen teacher Hakuin himself about a woman disciple who was a courtesan, uh, served in a brothel. There are uh, many different versions of this story, and this is not, the one I'm gonna share here is not exactly the one that's in the book, but it's clear that uh, Norman, uh, Hakuin met her while she was serving in that brothel. Uh, and this was translated by Norman Waddell. Ohashi awakens in a brothel. Ohashi was a young woman of Ahara. 
When her samurai father lost his position on the death of his lord, she sold herself to a brothel to feed her family, even though they begged her not to do so, and although she herself pined for them. She studied Zen with Hakuin, who advised her to contemplate life as the ultimate koan, enlightenment is possible in every circumstance. Although terrified by thunder, one day Ohashi made herself sit on the veranda during a violent storm. A bolt of lightning hit the ground in front of her, knocking her unconscious. When she came to, she felt as if the universe was hers. Hakuin recognized her awakening. And the story goes on that later she was redeemed by a rich patron and they were married. Later, with her husband's permission, she ordained as a nun with Hakuin and became renowned for her wisdom and compassion. On her death, instead of making the customary memorial tablet that are on the altars in Japan, her husband and friends had Ohashi carved as kanon, bodhisattva of compassion, and had the image placed within Hakuin's temple. For me, what is really beautiful about this story, about this koan, is the connection between courage and compassion. Sometimes we think of courage as courage of the warrior, a willingness not only to die, but to kill. But here, Ohashi embodies the spirit of kanon, the bodhisattva of compassion, because she was willing to be present to her deepest fears, to enter the brothel, to save her family, to be a slave, to save her family, and then her willingness to be with the lightning. By doing all that, she becomes the embodiment of compassion. She can give the gift of fearlessness to others. When we turn towards the elephant, turn towards the dragons, turn towards our own terrors with peace in our hearts, there is the possibility, always the possibility, of transmutation and awakening. So much of the harm in the world comes from fear and the aggression that is born from fear. So that when we practice as we do, like Ohashi sitting with her fear, it isn't just for us. It's actually a radical response to what is. Let's face it, pretty scary world. And it's not just what happens on the cushion. Love takes courage. Grief takes courage. Caregiving takes courage. Illness takes courage. Facing the 21st century takes courage. But this is a good practice for these times. And as I said earlier, I am so grateful for this practice in my own life, which has fostered courage and compassion in my own heart and for your courageous practice, wherever you are on this path. Please know it really, really matters.